Welcome to the Real Estate Lowdown. I'm your host, Bill Bimel. The Real Estate Lowdown is your weekly opportunity to step into the conversations going on in today's real estate and mortgage markets. We explore terms and concepts of the industry, host interviews of intriguing industry cohorts from high net worth investors to real estate agents just making their mark. We will share our love of all things real estate, bringing you the most innovative and sustainable real estate lifestyle ideas each and every week. If you enjoy what you hear today, hit the follow button, subscribe, so you don't miss an episode, and please share your support with a quick review. You can find me on the web at billbymel.com, and thanks for joining this episode of the Real Estate Lowdown. Well, Happy New Year and welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Lowdown. You know, 2024 has been off to quite an interesting year so far, uh, both personally and professionally and on a geopolitical scale, macroeconomic scale. Uh, And I'd love to talk about all those things. But, you know, today we're going to call this episode of the broadcast, which was probably being uh, released here somewhere near the end of January 2024. But we're going to call this our New Year's tidbit from abroad or something to that effect. Maybe something really uh, hello from the Far East. Or perhaps we'll call it a debt crisis looms in East in Southeast Asia. Because all of those things are what today's Real Tidbits is going to be about. Here we are. I hope you all had a great holiday, and I'd be remiss if I didn't pause and and say once again to my loyal listeners, thank you for joining this podcast on a regular basis, whether it's in your car, on your hikes, on your dog walks, in whatever travel it might be, or perhaps you just love my voice so much you listen to me all the time. But we do strive to bring the most prescient, most relevant conversations regarding real estate, both on a local, uh, state, national, and global scale. And that's what today's about. Today's about the global scale. I had the opportunity to to, to take my family on a, on a little vacation about 16 days over the holidays. You know, I am a believer that you work hard and play hard. And those of you that know me uh, know this very well. Uh, I certainly never stop working. Uh, although the one time that it that I do tend to turn things off is when I can get out of the country, you know, into another time zone with enough of an excuse to just forward the phone and, and be with the locals. And, and that's really why I probably plan a lot of these trips. I believe har- wholeheartedly in the concept that we as human beings live into our futures, a future that we create for ourselves. You know, and while many people spend a lot of time with their past out there living in their future, I'm one of those folks that likes to wake up somewhat clean every day and say, what can we do? What can, what's, what's new? What are we going to, what do we got? And, and traveling and family experiences, taking my family on unforgettable journeys around the world 
is, you know, one of those things I just love to live into. What did I do this holiday? Well, I, the kind of person that, you know, looks and books, likes to book a tour and let other people plan things for you. It's one of my, one of the things I love to do on my spare time is go hunt for travel deals and find unique places to visit. Uh, I have been to Japan several times in the last decade, maybe in the last two decades, actually. I probably went there for the first time about 12, 13 years ago uh, with my wife. And I had been back two or three times since then with some of my kids, but not all of my kids. My middle son in particular was in the army a number of times that I visited Japan. So it was never able to go with me. And I think the first time I went, he might've been at camp. So it was quite an experience for him when I, for all of my kids, we were debating how do you put together a trip that covers some area Gives us a flavor of of Asia. You know, now that I live, have a home base in the West Coast of the United States rather than the East Coast, it's a lot easier to do trips to Asia from Los Angeles or the West, anywhere on the West Coast of the US versus when we were on the East Coast living in Jupiter, raising the kids, whether it was out of New York or Florida, the holiday trips were more geared towards Europe or the Bahamas, you know, something in the Eastern Caribbean. If we wanted to stay warm or if we wanted to get a little sense of that Christmas spirit, we'd go somewhere cold like Amsterdam or Paris or the Brussels Christmas markets. And for me, that these end-of-the-year trips with the kids or these vacation trips with these with my kids were really the highlight of my year, really everything that I worked for. I mean, even if I had to spend... Like every dollar I made, extra dollar of the year, and then some, it's worth it for me. Because the kids are not going to remember you for, well, some, your kids will be thankful for the money you leave them in the bank, but they're most thankful, I believe, for the memories that you've created together and the experiences that you've provided. So I plugged away to create a trip that would include all three of my now grown children say that even about my 17-year-old daughter, Elizabeth, who is still a senior in high school, picking out colleges right now, but 17 going on 26 kind of thing. By the time they're in their teens, they're adults. So with that in mind, you know, I saw what it was like to have my eldest son, who is now 31, turned 31 this year. You know, he, the last trip that I, that he went on with us as a family was in his late 20s, early 20s, almost nine years ago. He's been on some small trips with us, but the last out-of-the-country trip was 2014, nine years ago as a family. And then since then, I was still raising Biz and, and Will for a number of years, so they were able to go on some trips. So I set out to create and design a trip that would include all of my kids. Of course, I had to offer to pay for it, but that, I guess some, some things never change as a parent. So I wanted a little bit of a taste of, I wanted to do Asia. I wanted a little bit of a taste of the cold. So, and I know one of my sons wanted to go to Japan. So 
where better than Hokkaido Island in the north of Japan, which is where we spent our Christmas days in the week of Christmas. Uh, we flew into Tokyo, did an omakase on my son's 31st birthday in Tokyo. That was just phenomenal. Flew up to Hokkaido Island, experienced a white Christmas on Lake Chikansu, about 35, 40 minutes south of Sapporo. Those of you that enjoy Sapporo beer, Sapporo being the main city of the Hokkaido Island. Um, and uh, they actually have a version of the beer in Sapporo that you can only get on Hokkaido Island. They never exported off the island, so Sapporo Gold. So if you're a Sapporo lover, you'd really love Sapporo Gold. Make sure you get to Hokkaido Island. The other things that Hokkaido Island is famous for is amazing snow tops. They, it's an island that was formed out of over 40,000 years out of four major volcanoes, two of which uh, still have some activity, although albeit not for many, many years. The other thing that Hokkaido is really most famous for are their scallops and their sea urchin, a.k.a. uni. So if you're a sushi lover who likes uni or scallops, then Hokkaido Island's for you. So after our white Christmas sun in Japan... A couple of days in Osaka, dining and and enjoying even more amazing food and you know clean streets of Japan and the the organized living of that dense culture and respectful, thankful, arigato, gomase kind of attitude. Uh, we didn't want to leave, but we did. I took two of my children, my younger one, uh, younger two, Phil, Will, and Biz, and uh, the three of us went on to Vietnam. Well, my eldest son stayed in, in Japan for another week with his wife and toured around Hiroshima, other areas of the country on the uh, on the high-speed bullet train. Uh, but really, the crux of today's tidbit comes down to my experience in Vietnam because I came across something that really does relate to our industry. And it, it's had me go down a rabbit hole for a number of weeks now since returning from this trip. And I got to tell you, I still don't have all the answers for you. So this really is a, a tidbit of maybe what I'm now researching in terms of real estate development and a potential debt crisis and defunct real estate projects in Southeast Asia. I'll start by saying the trip was amazing. We did, after a week in Japan, we did another 10 days in Vietnam, returning to the U.S. on January 8th. We did two major cities in Vietnam. We did Ho Chi Minh City, a.k.a. Saigon. You know, the war, you know, for a guy like myself who's in his middle 40s, you know, to me, Vietnam is Vietnam World War movies. I was born in 1975, the year that the war ended. And I was raised on Oliver Stone and and Platoon and Sidney Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. So those were my, you know, later independent films about Vietnam and the war. So, But they're all Vietnam War era movies. So, you know, it was interesting to come into this city and, and now in my 40s, traveling for the very first time, country that I adore because I've gotten to know Vietnamese American people. I've gotten to know the the food and the culture, and 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 I was very excited, very excited to experience this. The reality is this: since the war ended in 1975, 
the North Vietnam won the war, right? So North Vietnam won the war, meaning the communist regime took over. And that's why Saigon got renamed Ho Chi Minh City, which is the name of the, the leader of the Communist Party, you know, during the war. And the who the gentleman who ultimately, he ultimately passed away during the war. But, you know, his legacy carries on. Uh, he's really seen as the the father of the Vietnamese people 40 years later some 50 years later, so after his death. And so those that are in South Vietnam that live in Saigon, they still call it Saigon. Uh, Very few locals that I met were interested in calling it Ho Chi Minh City. Maybe it's a statement of their continuing political views. Yet they all live very happily. There's not a lot of crime, maybe some petty theft here and there, but the communist regime keeps crime off the street. People are very, you know... It's a different kind of communism. It, it doesn't feel like overbearing at times. I mean, you obviously don't want to get yourself in trouble. You don't want to do anything illegal. But everyone seems pretty happy. And this there is this communal kind of socialistic attitude there. Not to mention the fact that everything's as cheap as can be. It's one of the few second world countries or, you know, very much first world in many ways, but it's still considered officially a second world country. And it, and it really has all of everything that you need in life in terms of modern living in the cities. Yet it's a country that's supported primarily upon its rural areas and all of the farming and manufacturing and labor work that is done by Vietnamese people. They work for free. They're hard workers. I don't say free. They work for less. The exchange rate of the Vietnamese dong uh, to the U.S. dollar makes things very cheap. And and so it's quite interesting. You can go there and live on live very cheap for a long time if you have some, some money from outside the country. Now, the second half of the trip was in Hanoi, which was the capital of the country and the capital of North Vietnam. So what Hanoi was a an even more eclectic city. As the capital, you feel more of a sense of socialistic, communistic feel. There's a lot of construction projects that some that obviously are mired in corruption, uh, as I've learned from the locals. And then there's, again, this sense of everyone's happy, everything's cheap, the food is amazing, a lot of French culture in Hanoi was at the beginning of the 20th century, late or late 19th, early 20th century, was a French-ruled colony in the northern Vietnam. And a lot of today, 100 years later, the influences of French colonization still exist, both in the real estate and in the food and in the ways people speak. They actually speak, a lot of speak French as well as English and Vietnamese. What really caught my attention was my final two days in Vietnam. I ended up uh, taking a cruise out of Halong, around Halong Bay, which if you look on a map, is about two hours northeast of Hanoi in North Vietnam. And this is a famous, famous bay uh, because it's been, it's one of the top 10 UNESCO World Heritage Sites now. Uh, it is a series of almost 2,000 islands that had, were created 30,000 years ago by tectonic plates, non-volcanic activity, that create these magnificent uh, limestone and, and rock island formations popping and darting out of the water and, and, and creating a protected area of water such that you're in this 
green, blue, clear, gorgeous ocean water that is completely calm, uh, as if it's a lake. And this is an area that is expansive, you know, thousands, tens of square miles, hundreds of square miles. Uh, this area covers this UNESCO World Heritage Site. I, it has to be on your bucket list of places to see. If you want to see a couple of images, you can check out my personal Instagram, Bill by C, uh, to see some of my trip. But but certainly you can reach out to me if you want to see more, do some research on Halong Bay. Well, what's interesting there was the island marina that we took off this cruise from, which was called Tuan Chow Island, uh, was just created about 20 years ago. The island was right off the coast of the harbor of, of Quinbing province and where Halong City is, was designed 20 years ago the government built a, 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 a large, put in the infrastructure to build a large, actually in 1997, so it was probably, was that 26 years ago that the project started, where they put in roads and bridges and they dug out a marina and created a, a docking area for seaplanes to bring people in, put in place this project to allow developers to build houses and hotels and really try to create a, a tourist mecca here at Halong Bay, knowing that you've got this UNESCO World Heritage Site, et cetera, et cetera. So it was no doubt one of the most beautiful experiences doing this, this French Indochine boat on a cruise for three days in the Halong Bay and whatnot. But the experience of getting to it is really what the crux of today's tidbit was about. On this island, Tuan Chao Marina, there was building after building of incomplete real estate projects. Uh, you had probably 10 or 15 active boutique hotels on the island. You had a couple of shops, and you had 150 half-built structures and it was like a scene out of you know you would you don't want to say it's a war because it wasn't like anything was exploded it was new construction that just appeared to stop five years ago maybe three years ago in some cases a lot of it i came to learn and there's not a lot of research you can get on the internet about this so i have gone down a rabbit hole have been reaching out to brokers and bankers in vietnam uh, on off hours trying to get a little more understanding as to what happened i mean you're talking about you know a hundred room hotel where the the brand new cement is in place all the floors are laid, all the structure is there, the cement is clean, but it hasn't been touched in two years. There's no windows, there's no interiors. It's like a ghost town. And building after building, as you're driving onto this island and through the marina, you're seeing this. And then in the private home residential part of town, you've got these amazing French colonial designed single-family homes or multi-family villas that, you know, you'd think if built anywhere else in the world would be worth millions of dollars that are just lying there half-built. So what is it? Well, it's the Asian debt crisis. It's that, you know, real estate all over the world 
you know, people have gotten out over their skis. And especially for those of you that have heard that Chinese real estate was suffering a little bit. Well, this is probably part of that as well. My understanding is, is that during COVID, uh, tourism dropped so significantly. Obviously, the country was closed. A lot of their tourism was coming out of China, uh, obviously, because you've got, you know, a, a middle class in China that was burgeoning uh, prior to COVID and doing a lot of travel. And a lot of those Chinese people were also investing in these homes. Developers went bankrupt. Folks went bankrupt. The Chinese debt crisis rate came in. My understanding is, is that a portion of this is Chinese investors, but a lot of it is also just a real estate developer that came in trying to sell people on the concept of building these homes that really cost way more, went over budget. You're dealing with some, you know, some some uh, bureaucratic fraud that that probably caused cost overrides. And the reality is, is that because of the exchange rates, you know, renting a hotel room in on this gorgeous island, you know, the market rate for something like that's fifty to a hundred bucks a night. So, so I think there, there are there. This was an example of an amazing what it looks like from a distressed investor's point of view, amazing opportunity for guys like you and I, the two one Chow Marina development with project after project that's in default. Uh, and, you know, a, a lot of it comes from, I think, the, the not only COVID, but the back, the, the, the failure, ongoing failure of the Chinese real estate market. And so I leave you with that because there's a lot more to talk about in this, in this area, but it really kind of opened my eyes to the fact that there is stress out there. It just feels like, you know, we just have, we have the market manipulators and politicians, both in this country and abroad, have done a great job of keeping, you know, feeling rich and pouring money into the system to keep things go, going. But the reality is, is that the middle class all across the world has been battered in different ways. And in China, it's a real estate meltdown. At the heart of the decline in family wealth in China's is in China is the real estate meltdown. There, you know, it's having such a pervasive effect because 70% of Chinese family assets are tied up in property. That means that every 5% decline in home prices is wiping out 19 trillion yuan, which is $2.7 trillion in housing wealth, according to Bloomberg Economics as of December 17, 2023. So keep your eyes on this space. There's more to discuss and more to look at. But there isn't a housing crisis going on in China. It's bleeding into neighboring places like Vietnam. It means that some of that country might be for sale on the cheap. So if you're ever looking to become an expat of the U.S., hey, I'd recommend looking at Vietnam. That's all for today's tidbit. Welcome to 2024. It's going to be exciting. Get your popcorn ready, folks. And thanks for listening to The Real Estate Lowdown. I'll see you on the next one.
That's a wrap of today's episode of the Real Estate Lowdown. I enjoy bringing this content to you each and every week, and I really appreciate you tuning in. If you haven't already done so, please share the Real Estate Lowdown or any episode, any favorite episode with your friends, family, and you know, if you don't mind, leave a positive review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember to follow us so you don't do get notified every time a new episode is released. Love to hear from you directly at billbymel.com. Till then, see you next time.